Just a few months ago, a top-tier college basketball coach physically assaulted the coach of an opposing team during the post-game handshake. You know that part where everyone slaps hands and go, good game, good game, good game, good game, good game, good game, like you were kids back in your own soccer league. That's what it was for me. Well, in one article that was posted after the incident, the title went something like, this coach needs to go, and so does the post-game handshake line. And the article highlighted several reasons why this was such a terrible show of sportsmanship, as if, you know, we couldn't already figure that out for ourselves. But then went on to talk about the tradition of the handshake line and how, in the opinion of that writer, for the sake of preventing more incidents like this, the only solution is to eliminate the post-game handshake altogether. Now, I don't know where you stand on this particular issue, whether, you know, the, the traditional practice of slapping hands, right, with the opposing team, whether or not it's beneficial. Uh, some suggest that it's a good way to model good sportsmanship between teams after a heated game. At least that's the intention. Others argue it only creates more opportunity for demonstrations of unsportsmanlike conduct, like that one time I slapped hands with a kid only to find my hand covered in their spit afterwards. Or maybe you're thinking, Peter, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, more than you might think. Because when it comes to running this race of faith, as we've seen in our Pace Setter series all series long, it's important to keep our eyes on those who are keeping the pace for us, right? To set our pace for our own race. The mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in the faith who show us through their words and through their lives what it means to run hard after Jesus. It is important to keep our eyes on the pace setters. But what about those who are not running for Jesus? What about those who are running this race, but they're not running with us? In fact, they're on the opposing team, as it were. What do we do with them? What do we do? How are we to respond to those who run, but they don't run as followers of Jesus? See, it's one thing to slap hands with the opposing team as a superficial show of sportsmanship, but when it comes to really living this, to really walking this out in the day-in, day-out realities of life, how are we to relate to those people who are not, if I can say it this way, on the same team as us? Believe it or not, the Bible has quite a bit to say on this, and one such place is in the next few verses of Philippians 3. Please turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3, we'll be working our way through verses 18 and 19 this morning, starting now with verse 18. <clears throat> Paul, sorry, this is Paul the apostle writing to us. He says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Whenever we look into God's word like this, I find it helpful to have a few key words as a guide, a framework, if you will, that we can hang our findings on to stay uh, together. Well, I want to give us three phrases today. The first is this, the situation, the situation. Again, the writer here, the Apostle Paul, is speaking to a situation as it relates to running this race well. And he's going to do it by repeating something that apparently he said before, that there are those who follow Jesus and there are those 
who don't. To Paul, those are the only two options. There isn't an option to sport the Jesus jersey one day and then not the next. There isn't an option to be all in one moment and then all out the next. Either you are in or you're out. Either you're running hard after Jesus or you are actively running against him. That's the situation for Paul, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So as someone who sports the Jesus jersey, you have to know this. Not everyone else will. There are, in fact, those who stand against and oppose the one that you claim as Lord of your life. And so as a result, they're going to have opposing values. They will be marked by opposing thoughts and ideals. The world that they dream for and live after and run after is different than the one that you do. The things that wake them up in the morning and keep them up at night are going to be different than what describe yours. This is a given, and Paul explains why next as he follows up with the condition. We're going to look at that now. Here's the condition. He's going to outline this for us. Look at this in verses 19. He says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul outlines four conditions to describe someone who would be considered an enemy of the cross. We're going to list them out one at a time and look at each quickly, but in reverse order because they build off each other really well. The first is this, four conditions. The first is this, their mind is set on earthly things. Enemies of the cross set their mind on the things of earth. In a sort of backwards way, the Apostle Paul comments on this in another place, Colossians chapter 3. Here's what it says. This is just verses 1 through 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Watch this. Not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. For those of us who call ourselves Jesus followers, who have come to find Jesus as our hope in life and in death, Paul tells us to set our mind on things above. And this is in contrast to how we used to live as those who used to set our mind on earthly things. Now, what are earthly things? Well, verse 5 continues. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, anger, verse 8 continues, malice, uh, rage, slander, and filthy language. Remove these things from your lips. Do not lie to each other. We'll stop there. See, here's the list, right? Lust, greed, rage, malice, lying, you name it. All of this evidence of a mind that is set on the things of earth. Now, why is this? Well, the key is actually sandwiched in the middle of this list. It's an old word. It's the word idolatry. Idolatry. Now, the word idolatry often evokes the image of pagans, you know, dancing around uh, an ancient stone, this really, uh, this, this God made of wood or stone. And we're often quick to think, oh, that's so primitive. I mean, who would really sacrifice their firstborn to a rock, right? 
We're so beyond that. But tell me, who among us hasn't worked late at the expense of our own family? Who among us, in the name of career or convenience, hasn't neglected the needs of our neighbor? Perhaps these ancient idols are much closer than we realize. As John Calvin so famously said, the human heart is an idol factory, perpetually taking the good things of earth and churning them into gods for ourselves. And we know that it's become a God. We know that it's become an idol because when it is threatened, we become outraged. When it's threatened, we lie, we cheat, we lust. See, those surface level sins all stem from the same place, from idolatry, from taking anything else, setting our minds on anything other than Jesus himself. When my life's pursuit becomes anything other than knowing Jesus and making him known, I am dealing with an idol. I'll say that again. When my life pursuit becomes primarily about anything other than knowing Jesus and making him known, there is an idol in my life. Enemies of the cross set their minds on earthly things, but those who sport the Jesus jersey are meant to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's the first condition. Here's the second. Their glory is in their shame. Enemies of the cross glory in their shame, or as one other translation put it, they brag about shameful things. You ever knew someone who seemed to brag about all the wrong things? I'll tell you, so many of you know this. I'm from New Jersey, born and raised. So imagine if I walked in here today, because Jeff will do this from time to time, wearing a football jersey. But imagine I walked in Chiefs territory, right? Chiefs kingdom territory. I walk in sporting a green and white New Jersey Jets football jersey. Like that's almost laughable, right? For those unfamiliar, like the Jets haven't been good since what? Like the first Super Bowl? (laughs) Actually, they won Super Bowl three and that was it just for those keeping track. They're single digits back then. What I'm saying is if I came here to preach in a Jets jersey, I have a hunch somebody would pull me aside, put the shoulder around, or hand around my shoulder and say, hey, Peter, I don't really think that's something you want to brag about. When Paul says enemies of the cross glory in their shame, he's saying you're bragging about the wrong things. You're boasting about how you can get away with whatever you want. Enemies of the cross uh, broadcast their tiffs with their spouse on social media. They they brag about how they swindled someone, how how, who all they've slept with and and how they can go around just grabbing people's you-know-whats because they can. Like their glory is in their shame, Paul says. And it's one of the ways that you know that they're not following Jesus. Here's a third condition. Their God is their stomach. Enemies of the cross are ruled by their stomachs, by their appetites, by their desires. Let me try to illustrate this. About a year ago, I made the conscious decision to start tracking how much I'm eating each day. Now, never in my life have I done this. I've just eaten till the food has run out or I got bored. That's my approach, but I'm 35 now. And I'm starting to realize that I can't just keep doing that. 
But I've learned something pretty profound as a result. See, my stomach in all my life has never felt full. No amount of food makes a difference whether I'm eating too much or too little, by the way. Like most people's bodies tell them, hey, I think you've had enough. You don't need that ninth slice of pizza. Most people tell, their bodies tell them that, but mine doesn't for some reason. And I've come to realize this as a metaphor for my own soul, that I perpetually feel like I don't have enough in life. Never enough friends, never enough experience, never enough joy or fun or applause. There is this constant nagging, this insatiable hunger in my heart. Nothing is ever enough for me. Similarly, enemies of the cross may claim they have no God, but they do. And it's their belly their own appetites, their own desires. If I want it, if I feel it, if I enjoy it, if I delight in it and desire it, then it's right for me. Then it's mine. Then I'll do whatever it takes to have it. This comes right back around to idolatry, doesn't it? I'm mastered by it. The human soul truly is an idol factory. And what is the inevitable outcome Fourth and final condition, their destiny is destruction. Their destiny is destruction. The only outcome for an enemy of the cross is their demise, is their destruction. Meaning, if they keep this up, if they don't let up, if they don't change course, they are running straight for doom. They don't realize that they're riding the waves like a ship bound for the rocks. And unless something drastic happens, they'll be dashed to pieces in shipwreck. Like, like, like life as an enemy of the cross with, our, with minds set on earthly things where glory is in their shame and their God is their whims has only one outcome, destruction. Destruction for themselves, destruction in their families, destruction in their communities and beyond. This is Paul's point. And so what do you think he's going to say next? Where do you think he's going to take all of this? We actually read it already. And I'll admit, it is so easy to miss, but it is profound and we have to look at it again. This is verse 18 once more. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. We've considered the situation, we've considered the condition, but we cannot miss the compassion. That's our third and final word, compassion. See, as the reality sinks in that those who oppose the cause of Christ are headed toward their own demise, Paul doesn't get boastful. He doesn't delight in this. He doesn't brag, bunch of losers serves them right. No, he grieves. He cries. He weeps. This isn't the first time someone running hard after God cries literal tears over those who are running far from him. In 2 Kings 8, we see the prophet Elisha weeping as he discerns the destruction to come by the hand of a young man who stands before him. 
In Isaiah chapter 22, we find Isaiah saying, leave me alone to weep. Let me cry for my people as I watch them being destroyed. We see, we see the similar heart in Jeremiah, the prophet, when he writes, if you still refuse to listen, I will weep alone because of your pride. I will tell you, I don't cry in sorrow very often. I'm more of a happy tears kind of a guy. But there is one thing that is sure to bring me to my knees, and it is when I see someone reject time after time again the life that is offered to them in the midst of their own death. And that's because for Paul and Elisha and the rest, this has never been about winning and losing. This is all about life or death. When we see people heading toward eternal destruction, it does not bring us joy. It causes us to weep. It devastates us because it's never been about winning or losing, but life or death. And the idea of someone dying without Jesus should bring us such pain that there is only one way for that grief to escape in tears. Followers of Jesus weep over those who don't follow Jesus. Write that down, etch it into the, the tablet of your heart. Followers of Jesus weep over those who don't follow Jesus. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense because who else are we running after but the one who when he entered the city that would crucify him had no other response but to weep for them. Who as the guard surrounded him in the garden, he picks up an ear off the ground to heal the very soldier who would wrongly arrest him. Who as, as he watched the crowds through every city that he passed through, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's so moved with compassion, he declares that his intention as Lord of the harvest to send workers, to, to send laborers such as us into his fields because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Like if this is the one, if Jesus is the one that we are running after, who our minds are set on, our affections are set toward, Lord, then how is it we as Christians can be known in this world as anything else but for our own tears of compassion? I believe the primary reason that we are not known in this world for our tears of compassion is because of this. Verse 18, one last time. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. One other translation says it like this. Maybe this will clarify that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Hear me this morning because I don't think Paul is talking to someone else here. And his tears prove he's not speaking theoretically either. Paul is talking about us. Paul is talking to me. Paul is talking to you. Paul's saying that there are many who live 
as enemies of the cross. Why? Because they really are, in fact, enemies of the cross. And if we think that just because we sport the Jesus jersey from time to time, we're good, we're not. Our end is destruction. He knows it. You know it. Is that you? Are you really an enemy of the cross? I know this is so pointed, but it's because we have to grapple with this. Are we, in fact, living as enemies of the cross of Christ? Consider your Monday through Saturday. Take today off the table. Consider Monday through Saturday. What is your mind set on each day? What wakes you up in the morning ready to get started? Is it the cause of Christ or is it some other temporal perhaps even trivial pursuit. Consider your spouse and your kids or your employees and your coworkers or just your close friends. How would they characterize the words that come out of your mouth on the regular? Are you known as a cheat and a swindler? Do you brag about things that frankly are shameful to talk about? Consider your 10-year plan if you've got one. What's on it? Is it anything of substance for advancing the kingdom of Christ? Or are you clearly demonstrating the idols in your life that have your mind's attention and your heart's affection? It's very easy to tell if we've got an idol on our hands because we've built an altar of sacrifice. So consider, what are you regularly sacrificing to meet your goals for? What are you regularly sacrificing and for what? Consider what you celebrate. Do you relish when the other side loses in politics? Are you outraged when they seem to win? Or are you driven to tears over the foolishness of the entire thing? Far too many of us want to walk around pointing back to such and such a time in our life when we responded to God's mercy and think, that's right, I'm good. But Paul doesn't give that option here. He's very pointed. He's not saying, look at your past. He's saying, look at your now. Are you living now, today, as an enemy of the cross? Are you? Well, you will know by your tears. You will know if you have them. You will know as you consider what causes the tears to flow. Followers of Jesus weep over those who don't follow Jesus. Do you? I don't know if you know this, but there's been a Little League World Series taking place. Little League baseball, as in like 12-year-olds. And it's so big that ESPN is covering it, which is just insane to me. (laughs) 12-year-olds. Well, something happened between two of the teams in the qualifying rounds that has taken the internet by storm. The pitcher threw the ball and it got away from him and it ended up unintentionally hitting the opposing batter in the head. He ended up being okay, got checked out, but the pitcher was rattled. Not the player, the pitcher, not the batter. Clearly the pitcher didn't mean to do it, but he's shaken, you know? Cause, so after the batter gets checked out and he walks to first base, the batter on first base notices that the pitcher is still pretty torn up over this. 
And if you've ever unintentionally hurt someone, you know what it's like to feel like you just can't trust yourself going forward. And so something crazy happens. The kid who got hit, again, they're on opposite teams. The kid who got hit walks over to the pitcher and he holds him in his hands. In the middle of the game, walks off of first base like he could have got tagged out, didn't matter. Gets up, walks to hug the pitcher. He's in the middle and, he, and he's just like, look, it's gonna be okay, man. You're doing great. I'm fine. You're good. It's all good. Isn't that just crazy? The kid who gets hurt goes to comfort the kid who hurts him. But it made total sense as soon as I watched the follow-up interview with the boy who got hit. He says, as soon as I saw the pitcher getting emotional, I went up there to spread a little Jesus and comfort him. Spread a little Jesus. As I understand it, there are three groups of people here today. There are some of you who are following Jesus so relentlessly that you cannot help but weep over those who don't know him. There are. And I know this because I, and this is past week, I sat in a room with you as you fought back the tears praying for students starting up the new year because of all the pain that they've had behind them and all the pain ahead and it shows in your tears. And I love that about this church. And I love that there's so many of you that you don't even know who I'm talking about because it could be any number of people. I just love that about this church. Followers of Jesus weep for those who don't follow Jesus and you do and it shows. And if that's you, I just wanna say, keep going. Keep running. Keep weeping. Like the kid on first base, remember that the game really doesn't matter. Winning and losing don't really matter. This is life or death. And may you find that the tears you're weeping water the seeds you've been sowing and reap a harvest full of joy. And there are others, and perhaps you don't realize that you've been living as an enemy of the cross. And if you're wondering even now, then just consider, what are your eyes set most toward? Is it Jesus or something else? What do you brag about? Maybe you don't brag, but what do you talk about? Is it the glory of Jesus or anything else that pales in comparison? Consider if your stomach has become your God because you're seeking thing after thing of this world to fill that God-shaped vacuum in your soul that only Jesus could fill. If so, then I want you to consider, I want you to realize that your destiny is destruction. You may think you're sporting the Jesus jersey but your life is telling a different story. And if that's the case, then please hear me. Hear me this morning. Stop. Stop running. Turn back. 
turn around. Lay down everything that has been hindering you now and run to Jesus. Because lastly, there are some of you here and you're like the pitcher and you've hurt people. And maybe you didn't mean to, maybe you did, I don't know, but you're shaken and you don't trust yourself and you're not sure what to do. And if that is you, then I want you to know that like the kid on first base, Jesus has been coming for you. And he's got nothing but a warm embrace in store. Because he's not coming to get back at you. He is coming to bring you back to him. Are you ready to give your life to him? Are you ready to turn your heart toward him and let him make you new? Because you have been running so, so far from him, but today is the day that you can start running for him and start running to him. May he do that in all of us. Now I'll be here and there are people right where you are, even tuning in on the campuses who would love nothing more than to talk with you and pray about what that means to run for Jesus, not from Jesus. But I wanna pray for us. And then we're gonna respond in song. God, I am mindful right now of a man by the name of Stephen who was martyred for his faith. And as he's being pelted with stones, all because of a young man named Saul who's standing by watching, all Stephen has on his lips are words of forgiveness. Lord, do not lay this charge against him. And that young man, Saul, grew up and became the writer of this letter, Paul. And all he could say through tears, not tears that are just hypothetical, not just tears that are tears that he saw someone else like Stephen bear, but tears that are now his own. All he could say is, I want nothing more for those who are enemies of the cross, but to experience the love and the life that is in God. God, that is the prayer of so many even here now. And so Lord, we join together in prayer and we pray for any who are here today who have been living as enemies of the cross. Today is the day to start running for Jesus. Today is the day to turn back. Today is the day that they find their life in you. Lord, with today, even now, God, this prayer is not just a chance to end our sermon. This prayer, Lord, is because we believe in our hearts that there is something you are doing even here now, that by your Holy Spirit, you are calling people by name to yourself. And so when they hear you and when they respond and when they turn their lives toward you and put their faith in you, God, we are begging. We are begging for our children. We are begging for our spouses. We are begging for our parents and for our neighbors and our friends who are just here right down the road from us, God, would now be the time that they see you for who you are, that they find that you are good, that all this time they've been running for the wrong things and there is an invitation to turn to you and find life would now be the day of life and salvation, God, would now be the day 
where your name is glorified. And may we never be the same. God, I want to thank you for my brothers and sisters who are running this race and who are setting the pace for me, who are setting the pace for us, who are yards ahead of me. I can't even keep up with them. God, would they just keep running for you? And would, again, the tears that they've been praying and weeping water the seeds they've been sowing and reap a harvest full of joy? This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes it's easy to end a sermon like this and just kind of move on and, all right, good work, we're done. And I don't feel like that's what today is. Today is a chance to weep together. Today is a chance to respond. Today is a chance to turn to Jesus. So I'm going to be right there in the front row, sitting right there. Maybe actually I'll be over there by the cross. I want you to come talk to me. I want to weep with you. I want to pray with you. I want to pray by name for people in our lives that are running from him. I don't care if we go till 11 o'clock. I just want to keep praying and pleading and begging God to do what only he can do. And if you are here today and you are not following Jesus, today is the day to turn to him. What's keeping you from him? If you've got a dozen questions, come talk to me. If you've got wounds from the past that are keeping you from him, come talk to someone. Hear me, we love you and we want you to find the one that we have come to know and found him to be altogether beautiful. So we're gonna sing. I'll be there. I hope to see you there too.